And so we knew that that was a process that was happening, and we were also interested in the concept of movement within the diaspora and around the diaspora. Yeah. So I was able to ask people, you know, where were your grandparents born? Um, and that's a casual conversation that people can usually talk about pretty easily. Yeah. But it gives me some clues about, you know, the social history of African-descended people on the island. Mm. Like, I spoke with one cab driver whose parents were from, um, I think, St. Thomas, or his grandparents might have been. It's, uh, it was a little while ago, so I don't remember. But I asked them, you know, when they moved to Trinidad, and he said it was around the 1940s or 50s. And based on my pre-research, I knew that there was uh, an oil boom in Trinidad at the time. So mm. people were moving to Trinidad from other parts of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to kind of contextualize this man's life story or his, his history, his personal history within the broader history. And that's kind of what we were hoping to understand. Won't you come along with me? Hello, hello. Welcome to Young, Gifted, and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Alec as the guest. Um, I have to thank my friends Sho and Irene for introducing me to Alec. Irene, as you may or may not know, was guest number four. (laughs) She was the uh, guest on episode four of Young, Gifted, and Abroad. She's a good friend of mine and has been really helpful in sending um, new guests my way, especially during the first year of Young, Gifted, and Abroad. And Sho is a mutual friend of ours. And so I got to meet up with Irene and Sho back in August of 2019. for lunch just to see each other because we haven't we weren't able to catch up or see each other for a long time and show brought alec along because at the time show and alec were co-workers and so during our conversation somehow or, or other this podcast came up and alec mentioned that he went to trinidad for research purposes while he was um, an undergrad and so i gave him my card and i said well you know check it out see what you think and if you'd like to be a guest let me know and so cut to january of this year 2020 i was you know going through uh, my list of people i wanted to invite to be guests and alec was on it and irene was gracious enough to uh, reconnect me with him and here we are today so thank you to Irene, thank you to show, and of course, thank you to Alec for agreeing to participate. Coincidentally, all four of us are Spartans. All four of us did undergrad at Michigan State University. So, um, what can I say? Sometimes it pays to be a Spartan. Um, <laughs> so, about Alec, Alec is, uh, among many things, he is a community organizer. He's very passionate about the causes of liberation and social justice. And he, while he was at MSU, he majored in sociology. Um, he got exposed to the, the field of sociology in, in freshman year and felt like that really opened his mind and helped him make sense of the way, why the world is the way it is, why things are the way they are. And so he delved right into that and got along really well with a certain professor so much so that she um, invited him to join her research team. This research team was focused on the study of the African diaspora. So as part of this research team, 
Alec uh, participated in a research project that had him first going to Trinidad uh, to learn about the African diaspora there and just get a feel for the presence and the history of a people of African descent in that country. And then later on, the group went on to Cuba, where they were basically studying the same thing, but within a Cuban context, and also with a greater emphasis on Afro-Cuban religious traditions there. And then after that, they were able to present their findings at an academic conference in Spain, talking about everything they had learned and found about um, African diaspora and cultures within the diaspora. So it's a really interesting episode, especially if you are have any interest in, in academia um, or the you know academic research process, or if you're really interested in different histories of black people around the world, um, histories of members of the African diaspora in various places. This interview is has a lot of food for thought and Alec is is very thoughtful in relaying the information he learned and just his general experience overall so without further ado sit back relax and enjoy my interview with my friend Alec Manaya. Hello? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hey, Daniel. Okay, well, thank you for uh, making the time to talk to me today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know we only met like briefly that one time months and months ago, but I appreciate yeah. you wanting to be a guest on, on this podcast. Uh, that's really, it's really nice of you. Um, oh, are you feeling better today? Yes. Yeah, oh. I still have a cough, so... Oh, I might be like clearing my throat or drinking some water. Is that all right? Oh no, that's that's totally fine. Um, yeah. I just didn't want you to like uh, strain yourself if you weren't feeling any better. So, um, mm-hmm. but it's good to know that you are, you know, on the mend. So, mm-hmm. okay. So, why don't we start with you introducing yourself a bit, if you don't mind? Um, okay, so my name is Alec. Um, I am now a graduate of Michigan State University. Um, I attended between 2013 and 2018 and I studied sociology as well as Asian American studies and um, a significant part of my I guess academic experience was studying the African diaspora with the African Atlantic research team which is a interdisciplinary uh, collective of professors uh, grad students undergrad students and community members who are interested in uh, the study of the African diaspora Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's a research and mentoring collective. Okay. Uh, how did you hear about this collective? Um, I took a class with the founding director. Um, her name is Dr. Wallene Dodson. She's a faculty member in sociology at the university. Mm-hmm. And um, I really bonded with her and connected with her on a lot of different things um, that are academic and personal. And then she became a mentor to me. And through that, I was involved with her research team and eventually started working with Okay. Wow. Had you had any previous, like, um, um, academic interest in the, in the African diaspora before meeting, um, that mentor of yours? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, I mean, the African diaspora is something that has been completely integral to the development of the modern world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I've been 
very curious about you know history and sociology and trying to understand this condition that we have now you know modernity just trying to understand the world now um and so that had led me to explore a lot of different areas of history and uh social development so african diaspora was definitely one of them because um, it is such an important part for the development of the contemporary world mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so is that through that collective is that what had you go to oh i don't remember was it trinidad that's right yeah okay <laughs> um yeah so with the african atlantic research team I traveled to Trinidad and Tobago. Mm. Um, I also traveled to Cuba, which is the site of their um, multiple decades-long research on Afro-Cuban religious traditions. Mm. And we also traveled to Sevilla, Spain, to a conference to present on our research. Oh, wow. Okay. So, like, um, over how much time were you doing all this from going to Trinidad and Tobago and Cuba from from that to presenting in, in Spain? How much time was that? I think between our first research experience in Trinidad and then presenting in Spain was about a year and a half. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. So when you went to when you were going to do your research, how much time were you spending in in each place? Um, it was a little bit of a. It's, it's interesting because uh, my mentor and the grad students in the collective wanted to structure the um, travel experiences as kind of a study abroad. But um, they have a distinct approach to doing study abroad pedagogy. So we just did about a week in each place. Mm. And uh, it served as kind of a historical pre-research or um, kind of like an on-site pre-research that would become something bigger later on. Okay. Um, I can elaborate on all of that if you would like to. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sure. So um, I was actually going to do a study abroad program in Peru that was uh, facilitated through the university's study abroad program, and it was about social research. Um, I had an interest in pursuing a career in academia and uh, research, so I was going to go on that program. But my mentor, Dr. Dodson, cautioned me against it, saying that I couldn't really understand the community I would study in Peru without having uh, an initial exposure to the community. So, mm-hmm. you know, in this study abroad program, it's meant as, I guess, a, a complete research experience where before even visiting the community in Peru that I would have uh, studied, I would have created my research questions and I would have designed the, you know, the I would have chosen my methods and begun some, you know, predictions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point that my mentor, Dr. Dodson, uh, really emphasizes is that you can't really understand the community and you can't develop a research project without having, you know, initial exposure because, you know, what are you going to know? How are you going to know what questions to ask and how to answer those questions if you've never been there, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So her approach is that we were studying African diaspora and we were doing so in an attempt to um, develop some content for a museum exhibition on the African diaspora that's currently in development. Mm, Um, And so we had some questions about culture and diaspora you know there's a lot more in there too but um we had some questions but they were just vague curiosities because we were interested in going to those communities first and uh then seeing what questions emerged from our experience there so first we went to trinidad and tobago which is uh another site that's part of the african diaspora 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we were there for a conference for the Transatlantic Roundtable on Religion and Race. Oh. Um, and so we, you know, conducted historical pre-research. Um, that's just, you know, your secondary sources, primary sources that you would find in the library or online or in books. And then we conducted, I guess, uh, conversational interviews on the ground in Trinidad, mm. um, asking people about diaspora, about their family histories, about culture, about language, and um, seeing what emerged. And so through that experience, we, you know, gathered some data. We gathered, I guess, some uh, preliminary knowledge about African diaspora in this one site. And then we then traveled to Cuba, I think, almost a year later, uh, where we developed those concepts a little bit more. Hmm. Um, and then we were able to present that in Spain. Okay. Wow, that is, that's so fascinating. Um, wow. So, so f- for someone who's not, like, familiar with the academic research, like, uh, like when you say pre-research... And then, you know, that process from going to that to presenting. Can you just, like, explain that process a a little bit? Yeah, I think, um, so within the tradition of social sciences, there's kind of uh, an arrogance that a lot of social social scientists approach the world with. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's an arrogance that says, like, you know, I can can read about a community and say, uh, well, my family is from South China, so... You know, you can read what research has been done about culture in a community in South China. And, you know, you can look at all the literature about it. And from there, you can just, you then you've established that knowledge, right? You know about that community. You understand it. You understand the people. And then you can develop your research questions based on the knowledge that has been produced by other academics. Hmm. But there's kind of, um, there's a relationship there that's kind of arrogant. You know, it's kind of uh, parallels like colonialism or colonial relations where the, you know, developed world, you know, people in the developed world in the academy can produce knowledge and have a definitive say about um, other people in the global south um, and their communities, their cultures, their histories. Hmm. And so um, in a kind of way to make research more liberatory, my professor's pedagogy, um, her research methods involve subverting that. So instead of assuming that she can know about a community uh, based on the research that's been done before by a lot of um, academics that are, you know, frankly, a lot of them are, have been racist. You know, there's a mm-hmm. long legacy of racism in anthropology and sociology. Um <clears throat> There's a real strong history of colonialism there. Yeah. Uh, and so instead of, you know, just working within that lineage, she wants to subvert it and kind of give voice to the people themselves. And, and in, a, in a way, actually, that's how you, the only way you can truly understand a community, yeah. right? You know, is yeah. if you go there and really listen to them and understand what is important to that community and uh, how they understand their history rather than how you would like to impose you know, another narrative of history onto them um, or another set of truths or another interpretation of their culture and their, their practices. Mm. Um, and in this, you know, in this case, we were studying religious traditions. So um, one example, I guess, that could concretize this is a lot of um, academics consider uh, there's an Afro-Cuban religious tradition, the most populous on the island called, well, so the 
I guess, first world academics, um, Western academics have called it Santeria. Uh, But that's not what the people there call it. And they don't consider it in the same way that the academics do. So the academics consider a syncretism or a a fusion of African uh, Taino, which is the native people of Cuba, um, and uh, Catholicism, like the religious traditions stemming from those three mm-hmm. places. Um, but that's not how the people there understand it necessarily. And it's not a syncretism or a fusion. It's um, a history of colonialism where the Spaniards imposed Catholicism on um, African and Native people mm-hmm. who were practicing their traditions. Um, and so what they, the people on the island have done is to use some of the symbols and images of Catholicism in order to conceal the fact that they were doing something more authentic to their roots Mm -hmm, and, you know, kind of fly under the radar in regard to the Spanish colonizers who were imposing Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, So while outwardly to the Spanish, it looked like these people were practicing Catholicism, they were really, you know, continuing and developing their own religious traditions. Mm -hmm. So it's not a syncretism, as a lot of academics would say, um, it's more of a transculturation process, you know, where cultures are meeting and colliding within a space that's, you know, conditioned by power relations. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so academics would understand, I think it's, um, I don't know, uh, is the name, I think, of the religious tradition that a lot of Western academics call Santeri. Mm. So hopefully that can that help. Yeah. So you, so you have to get that... Um so before even like embarking on what whatever the the research goal or the purpose of it is, you you went in and got that uh, I guess foundational knowledge. Uh, That's right. Because there's so much that you um, can't can't take for granted that you know just based on reading about it. So exactly. Okay. Gotcha. And uh, you said you were going, um, you know, on the ground talking to people about their like family histories and all that. I, I mean, how do you go about finding these people? And I mean, how do you even get them to be like willing to, to talk about that with these, you know, people who, who they don't know, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess I think it's important to note that, that the research we were doing was not so much a rigorous uh, research study where we were, you know, getting a representative sample mm-hmm. um, for our interviews or, you know, conducting an ethnography in any, you know, meaningful sense. We were conducting some research, but it was mostly an educational experience for us. Um, mm-hmm. And by us, I mean myself and a couple of undergrad students who were also there. Um, we were learning how to conduct research. So we were learning research methods, okay. specifically um participant observation research it's like uh on-site sociological research Mm -hmm. so we were learning that and so we're just kind of like developing our skills with the methods so it wasn't a totally rigorous research project Mm. Uh, so we didn't go you know think about what are the different populations in this um uh, like in trinidad and tobago for for instance or in cuba um you know we didn't really think about what are the different groups here you know how can we get as much uh, representative data as possible. We were just um, there for conferences and on the way, just talking to people, people on the street, um, cab drivers that, you know, took us from the airport to the hotel. Mm. Uh, yeah, just uh, anyone we, we would find, just strike up a conversation. Um, we didn't, like, treat it as, uh, 
as an interview necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. it was more conversational. Okay. Um, we didn't record it, you know, we didn't have any audio devices recording, so that puts people, you know, more at ease. Right, right. <laughs> we didn't have um, notebooks out necessarily. We didn't, you know, have structured questions. We, you know, did some research on the island, for example, in, in Trinidad um, and its history. So we had some concepts and some historical points that were interesting to us. And we, you know, asked about those things in some indirect ways. Mm. Like, for example, one aspect of the African diaspora is that um, African-descended people move around within the African diaspora, and there's been a history of that. So Mm -hmm. uh, people in Trinidad are not necessarily... Uh, ancestrally from Trinidad, like, you know, as far as after being um, forcibly transported from Africa. Hmm. So I talked with people who whose parents or grandparents moved to Trinidad in the 1940s or 50s from other islands in the Caribbean. And so we knew that that was a process that was happening, and we were also interested in the concept of movement within the diaspora and around the diaspora. Yeah. So I was able to ask people, you know, where were your grandparents born? Um, and that's a casual conversation that people can usually talk about pretty easily. Yeah. But it gives me some clues about, you know, the social history of African descended people on the island. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I, I spoke with one cab driver whose parents were from, um, I think, St. Thomas, or his grandparents might have been. It's, uh, it was a little while ago, so I don't remember. But um, And so I asked them, you know, when they moved to Trinidad, and he said it was around the 1940s or 50s. And based on my pre-research, I knew that there was uh, an oil boom in Trinidad at the time. So mm. Trinidad sits on a massive oil shelf. And there was a bunch of, I guess, development at the time to exploit the oil, process it in Trinidad. So people were moving to Trinidad from other parts of the Caribbean uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to kind of contextualize this man's life story or his, his history his personal history within the broader history. And that's kind of what we were hoping to understand. Gotcha. Okay. So it was more like informal, casual type thing. Um, that's right. Just talking to people as you were out and about. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I didn't even ask, like, what, what got you interested in sociology in the first place? Oh, yeah. Um, well, when I was a freshman at Michigan State, I took a general education class that was, I think, about society and individual or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found it extremely exhilarating um, because I was able to understand for the first time that individuals' lives are not shaped by the conditions of, you know, the subjective conditions of that individual. Uh, they're shaped more so by society. And that was very interesting to me because growing up, I had believed and had heard and had been taught that, for example, uh, a poor person is poor because of their, you know, bad decisions or their lack of skills in financial management and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I had always felt that that was not correct, but I didn't know how to express it. And sociology gave me the conceptual tools and the language to really explain and articulate exactly why that's uh, an incorrect and harmful view and that poverty is caused by structural conditions and um, social conditions that are not only global now, but have been developing for, you know, 500 or more years. Mm. Um, So that was really illuminating to me. And once I was able to develop that articulation, 
you know, there's so many other concepts about society that I was interested in, and I just uh, wanted to explore them there. Yeah. And I found my way into environmental sociology, um, and then we began to study race and ethnicity and culture and other things like that after that. Yeah. I mean, since you mentioned it, like environmental sociology, like how would you define that? Is just is that just like like you said, how, you know, an individual is, you know, affected by the, the society they're in, but extending that to like the environment and like mm-hmm. how they interact with the environment, is is that what that field is? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh the study, I guess, of how society and the environment interact. I mean, that's very vague and it really doesn't offer a lot, but I guess that is a comprehensive definition. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. And, and for you, when you were going on this, um, when you were going to Trinidad and, and Tobago and, and, uh, and Cuba, was this your first time uh, traveling out of the country or had you traveled internationally before? Yeah. That was the first time. I mean, I had been to Canada. I'm from Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was the first time traveling abroad in any meaningful sense. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, you were going for, you know, a very specific purpose. So I'm sure that yeah. kind of like grounded you in a way. Um, I mean, did you feel anything in particular about the fact that you were traveling outside the country for the first time? Um, I think I was excited mostly, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit nervous. Um but because it was not a long, immersive experience as some study abroad programs are, mm-hmm. I wasn't that nervous. Um, we were going to be, you know, in a regular hotel or something I would be comfortable in. Mm-hmm. And we would be, you know, immersing ourselves in the community. But it wasn't like I was staying with the family for six weeks like some other programs. Yeah. You know? um, so I wasn't that nervous about it. Okay. All right. Yeah. And um, you might have mentioned this before, but how many people uh, was it? with you in this group when you went? Well, on the first trip to Trinidad and Tobago, I traveled with um, my mentor and professor, Dr. Dodson, two graduate students, and another undergraduate student. Okay. So there were, I guess, five of us total. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when we went to Cuba, it was three undergrad students and one graduate student. So okay. just four of us. Gotcha. So these are pretty small groups. And then you went, uh, if I have the timeline correctly, you went... To Trinidad, and, and you went to Trinidad and Tobago first, and then, like, almost a year later, you went to Cuba, and then later on, you went to Spain, right? That's right. Okay, gotcha. All right. When you went to, to Cuba, what, so, so in Trinidad, you were mostly there for a conference, right? Mm-hmm. And Cuba, was that also, like, revolving around a conference, or was that just to extend the... The, the, the research that you had already started to do? It was both. Okay. Um, my So the research team, Art, or the African Atlantic research team, has had a field site in Cuba and Santiago mm-hmm. de Cuba, for example, uh, specifically, for I think over two decades. Mm. And uh, so we were invited there uh, to go present at a conference on, uh, I think it was African diasporic culture, so we went and presented some research, and I, I spoke a little bit there based on my experiences in Trinidad, but it was still kind of in development mm-hmm. at the time. So I was just sharing some preliminary, uh, I guess, lessons learned. Yeah. And uh, our graduate students were those that were mostly speaking there. Okay. Um, on their dissertation, yeah. 
And so we were there for the conference, and we were also doing some research as well. Gotcha. Uh, when you when you were going on these, um... oh, sorry. Okay, sorry. You're good. <laughs> check for a second. <laughs> when you were in um, in uh, in Trinidad in, in Cuba, respectively, um, you know, since you are studying um, the African diaspora, you know how how much of these these groups you were in were members of the African diaspora. Um, do you mean the communities we visited? Oh, no, I meant like your, your like research group that you went with. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. So when we went to Trinidad, I was with um, my mentor, Dr. Dotson. Mm-hmm. She's a black woman, member of the African diaspora. Yeah. And then one of the grad students was uh, now Dr. Zaid. He's also a member. Um, there was another grad student, a white guy. And the, the other undergrad student was a white woman. Mm. And... Um, I'm Chinese and Japanese, so we are kind of diverse. And then for the Cuba trip, um, we had a couple people who were African descendants, one, one undergrad, one grad student, and then um, another European descendant guy um, uh, other than, uh, who was also an undergrad student. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I was just curious because um, uh, not to say that anyone can't have whatever research interest they're in, but obviously because this is uh, – an interest in a specific, you know, the African diaspora. And it's kind of like, um, I guess I'm thinking from like a, a black American context. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like sometimes some of us might feel touchy about who gets to say what about us and about mm-hmm. our history and, um, and all that. So, um, or, you know, even in an academia who gets the credit for, for, for teaching this or publishing this or, or promoting this idea. So I was just curious to, about how many black people were involved in your, in, um, the, the small groups that you were in. So, okay. Okay. And, and you, you were at these conferences. I mean, how does, again, for someone who's not familiar, what is a, an, an academic conference like? You know, what is it like uh, attending or presenting at one? I know maybe that's broad, but can, can you <laughs> talk a little bit about what that experience is going to an academic conference? Sure. Um, the conferences we went to were put on by organizations that were uh, less academically focused and more focused on bridging the academy and community. Mm-hmm. So... Is a little bit different experience than what you would normally get from an academic conference. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's you know a couple of days of um, small breakout sessions where people are presenting papers that they've written. Um, they might have powerpoints. They might read directly from their paper, and you know they'll be organized around a theme. Um, like if I went to a sociological conference in Chicago once about uh, inequality, so there was you know the whole. The whole conference is about inequality, and you know there's a lot of different ways you can examine that. So there are different workshops and um, different presentations on subtopics there. But so in this, these two conference experiences in Trinidad and in Cuba, the organizations were more focused on starting dialogue between academy and community, so as to not keep the knowledge that's produced um, by you know these very prestigious black scholars and other scholars of the African diaspora, mm-hmm. um, you know, siloed within the academy. You know, they were trying to bridge it with the community. And uh, a lot of topics here were about religion as well. So there were clergy members invited and mm. um, 
I guess, leaders and practitioners of religious traditions from West Africa, from the Caribbean, from Latin America broadly, um, some people from Europe, African descendants in Europe, um, and of course, North America. Mm-hmm. So this experience was, it included presentations on academic papers that were associated with the topic of, I guess, uh, race, African diaspora, culture, religion, but uh, there are also different discussions by community members about their organizations that they were developing or working on in their respective communities. Um, we had some integrations with the community in Trinidad, for example. Um, one of the members of the conference is part of a community organization that services some of the poorest neighborhoods in uh, Port, Port of Spain, Trinidad, sorry. Hmm. Um, and so we went and visited those communities and we went to some religious ser- uh, services there. Yeah, so that was cool. And then in Santiago de Cuba, that's where my um, the research team has had a research site for a couple of decades. So we went and visited the community there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were some members of the community that participated in the conference as well. And there was uh, all sorts of really fun stuff like um, religious, uh, I guess, not sure how you would call it, but I guess uh, events that were religious in nature. So uh, we had drumming circles and dancing that were, you know, calling on the ancestors and calling on, uh, for example, um, Elegua, you know, one of the um, orishas of the regla de ocho tradition in Cuba. Hmm. Um, so we got to experience that. And that was at the conference too. So that's very different from what you would normally experience at a conference. Yeah. But I highly recommend, you know, going to a conference that bridges community and academics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that does sound pretty cool. Um, in Cuba, was everything in Spanish, like with the, the conference you were going to? I'm just wondering, like, did you did you have, like, an interpreter with you the whole time you were in, in Cuba? Or was the... Well, no, you said you, you your uh, research collective has had, a like, a site in Cuba for, like, 20 years. So I guess it's... Mm-hmm. I am. Is it like bilingual? Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. I'm wondering about like the, the linguistic setup while you were in Cuba. That's basically yeah. basically what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, we were just on our own. We didn't have a translator or interpreter. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I speak Spanish and my colleagues speak some Spanish as well. Okay. So we were able to you know communicate and ask questions and do our kind of conversational research that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but our grad student who has done. Um, dissertation research there for a few years definitely helped because the Cuban Spanish um, can be difficult to understand for people that aren't familiar with it. So I had some trouble at times and he really helped us out. Mm. Um, yeah, the, at the conference, there was, um, it was bilingual, maybe even trilingual okay. because there were members of uh, African diaspora, you know, from Spanish-speaking parts of Latin America, from the English-speaking parts of also Latin America, but North America mm-hmm. uh, more strongly. And then there are some French uh, speakers there as well. So they would have presentations in one language, but there would be kind of someone that would summarize it later or translate, you know, halfway through and stuff like that. Okay. <clears throat> All right. And um, was it a week that you said that you were in each? Like you were a week in Trinidad and Tobago and a week in Cuba? 
That's right. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I know you didn't have a ton of time in in either of those uh, places, but I'm just curious about just your general impression of those places outside of, um, or maybe in addition to like the, the, your academic interests and the research purposes you had there, like Mm. just as, you know, places where people live and and places that you hadn't been before, what were your impressions? Mm. Great question. Um, I, I really love both. I think I really, really loved Cuba. Um, there are a couple of things about that that I really love that I'll touch on too, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think, so I, I've grown up in the Midwest, which is statistically the like highest concentration of European descendants in the United States. Wow. Um, compared <laughs> to like the West coast, the Southwest, yeah. uh, the South, the Northeast and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like walking around here as a non-white person, you don't really realize how alienating it is until you go to a place where it's full of beautiful black and brown people or myself when I travel to Asia, it's like seeing my own people, you know, mm-hmm. um, and we, it's our space. It's, you know, we are dominating the area. <laughs> you know, it, it feels a lot more comfortable. It feels like being at home. So mm. when I, I think, so I mentioned that going to Trinidad was my first experience abroad in any meaningful sense. Yeah. And we had, you know, a, a stopover i think in fort lauderdale florida and even there is far more diverse than the midwest right which i'm used to Hmm. and um it's just so beautiful to you know be even in the airport and hear people speaking haitian creole you know hear hear, um people speaking spanish arabic you know there's so many different languages and uh it felt more comfortable to me seeing european descendants or white people (laughs) as the minority there you know Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just it makes me feel better and then so going to Trinidad and Cuba yeah. was great um, for the same reason. It's like my mentor says often uh, she tries to get students to travel outside of the United States because you realize that we are the world, actually. You know, the mm-hmm. world is black and brown. It's like the Europeans and their descendants outside of Europe are definitely a numerical minority. and. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of like for a lot of people who are not white and especially young students like that can really flip something in your brain that's very empowering um, because we're used to you know at least those of us that live in the United States or other European dominated spaces it's like we're used to being marginal used to being you know on the edges and um, just you know not having a comfortable claim to ownership of a space for example mm-hmm. um, so she really pushes us to get out into the world to see that, you know, this, it's a big world and it's, it's very different once you get outside the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. And you said you really enjoyed Cuba. What was, what was it about Cuba that you enjoyed so much in particular? Yeah, there's so much about Cuba. Um, we, so we were able to visit the research team's site and the community there. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt great about that because I was welcomed um, and we were able to participate in some of the uh, religious traditions there. So we saw um, and participated in <clears throat> some drumming circles that called on ancestor spirits, um, you know, asking ancestor spirits for guidance in the direction of the community at the time. And mm-hmm. um, that was really beautiful to be a part of. Uh, I've always had an interest in I guess, non-Western spirituality growing up. You know, I was raised in a 
Catholic tradition, actually, as well as some exposure to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so I've always had an interest in the different ways that people interpret and experience the world. And I I think that, so in the United States, um, and I guess in the world broadly, Catholicism has played a pretty oppressive role. uh, And there's a certain kind of like violence against a native or non-European culture that happens when, you know, Europeans have imposed Catholicism on us. It's like kind of like a spiritual violence. Mm, um, yeah. So I've always been attracted to reconnecting with those parts of, you know, non-European, non-Christian um, spirituality. So I got into Buddhism from my own heritage for a while. And um, there's a lot of parallels between my experiences there and the experiences I had with these Afro-Cuban traditions. Yeah. Um, and so I found that very affirmative and very... Uh, beautiful, very meaningful. And uh, the other dimension is that Cuba was colonized by Spain for, I think, 400 years Mm. and um, was then a neo-colony of the United States from 1902 to 1959 when they had the triumph of their socialist revolution. Um, And that is how people there speak of it. When I spoke to people, they, they say it's the triumph of the revolution. You know, they're very proud of it. Um, they very much support the revolutionary government and uh, the the way that the society functions is so so much different so much more human than than how the United States is you know like for example there are no uh, ads or billboards in Cuba um, when you drive on the roads there are some billboards but they have like <clears throat> very beautiful paintings um, paintings of revolutionary leaders paintings that affirm you know children's right to go to school you know things like that very basic things Mm -hmm. um, that are just affirmative of basic human values like um, altruism and um, the value of education all sorts of things like that environment Um, and just the way people relate to each other is way less alienated than it is in the united states we have a very individualistic culture yeah um and we don't, you know, when you talk, when you walk on the street, you don't really talk with people most of the time. But in Cuba, it's there's a strong sense of collective culture, uh, collective identity. Um, people are extremely helpful and always willing to talk. And, um, you know, if you are, you know, obviously I'm not an African descendant. I don't look like uh, I'm necessarily from Santiago de Cuba, which mm-hmm. is where we were and which has a high concentration of African descendants. Uh, there is actually a Chinese population there historically, so some people, you know, thought I was actually Cuban. Oh. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so, you know, they, and just from the way we dress and talk and walk, people can tell you're from the United States. Yeah. And there's uh, a relationship of tension there, you know, between Cuba and the United States. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, some people aren't, if you're acting like a loud, rude, racist, American uh, you know, people won't welcome you. But if you walk among the people, if you're humble, if you speak with respect, I found them to be very, you know, helpful and welcoming. Um, that was just so much more affirmative and more human centered than the, you know, very exploitative, you know, individual culture that we have in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was just listening to to you talk about how you know it's the the socialist revolution is seen as a, a triumph by mm-hmm. uh, you know Cuban people who live in Cuba. Because I was thinking about like um, 
stuff that I've like read in the past, like, uh, oh goodness, what is it called? There's like an animated movie called Chico and Rita or something. Oh, really? And there's a novel. Oh, I wish I remembered what that novel was called. Um, or even just like one day at a time on Netflix, like all like these these books or, or things like t- uh, TV shows or films that I've seen about Cuban people, and a lot of times it's that like. And granted, my, I don't know a ton of Cuban history, but I guess it was uh, a lot of the people who left Cuba and like came here tended to be more conservative, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so their their perception of of what happened and and the way Cuba is now is obviously um, different. And I think especially here in the states where you know communism was this just like big evil thing and and cuba was one of those places where we just couldn't make them do what or be the way we wanted them to be it's kind of right. some people it's seen as like you know oh we lost one or some type of right, thing yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is how it's viewed here for sure. but you know it, it's nice to hear um you know from you like the other side of it where people are like well you know this is, you know, the the aftermath of of what happened that revolution, and people are are doing okay. It's not like a mm-hmm. a wasteland, and everybody's not miserable. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So I know it's uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like the the things, the narratives we're told about countries that have had socialist revolutions, Cuba, for example, is so so far off most of the time from the reality. Mm-hmm. You know, we think, you know, based on what we hear here uh, in the United States on the news or in stories and movies that, you know, people are just suffering there. I've heard stories about, like, food shortages being so severe in Cuba that, like, people would eat pizza with just, like, tomato sauce and condoms on it. Like, I, mm. like that's uh, that's absurd. Like, obviously, yeah. no one would ever do that. And that's not at all the case there. You know, there's plenty of food um, and people are living just fine. So it's it's pretty absurd the kind of things that we hear about other countries here. Yeah, yeah, and obviously, like like I said, I'm not Cuban. I don't know a ton of Cuban history. I'm sure there's like uh, I don't want to go so far as saying both sides are valid because I don't think that's something that should be. I don't I don't think that's an approach that's worthwhile in every situation. But obviously, you know, you have one perspective of history and then you have another and then that evolves over time as that perspective is retold over and over and over again. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Yeah, there's, um, I guess the, I hear what you're saying about the both sides and the, like the side that's very critical of the revolution Mm -hmm. um, in the United States seems a lot bigger than it is in terms of the actual like Cuban population. Yeah. Um, The like exodus of people that left Cuba in the midst of the revolution and afterward uh, tended to be those that were uh, very big landowners or Mm -hmm. were very comfortable with the United States and the mafia um, that was running a lot of the drugs and exploitation and prostitution in Cuba at the time Hmm. um, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh, the people that are the poorest, people that are African descendant, most depressed indigenous um, uh, women there in Cuba, they're overwhelmingly in support of... uh, The the majority and they're overwhelmingly in support of the the revolution. Yeah. From my experience there and from other things that I've, I've seen there too. Yeah. Well, interesting. 
Interesting. Um, and then you said this this kind of this culminated in you in you all uh, presenting the your research in Spain, right? Um, why why was it Spain in particular? You might have mentioned it already, but why why Spain? Mm. Yeah. Um, so that was another. It was actually a different organization than the previous two, mm-hmm. uh, and that was this one is called um, ASWAD, the Association for the Study of Worldwide African Diaspora. I think that's right. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's another academic organization that is multidisciplinary and uh, focuses on African diaspora and hosts conference every two years. I think the one they had in 2019 was in um, at Howard University in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. but I could be wrong. Um, but the one back in 2016, I think it was, um, or maybe 2017, was in Sevilla, Spain, um, because that's another site for the African diaspora. Um, the people don't usually think about it, but they're, the Europe is a site of the African diaspora as well. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at the map, you know, Africa and Europe are so close that it makes sense that there would be travel there. And of course, <laughs> right. the Portuguese and the Spanish were among the first to get engaged with the slave trade and mm-hmm. um, the colonization of the Americas and Africa. Um, so African people were forcibly taken and also voluntarily traveled to Sevilla, Spain at different points in history. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Sevilla was the, the point from which Ferdinand Magellan or someone left to explore um, and colonize. So mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's an important historical site, and they wanted to kind of bring the perspective of African diaspora into Europe and Southern Europe, I guess, Mediterranean Europe. And kind of have that conversation yeah. um, across disciplines in that location. Yeah, yeah. Is Sevilla? Is that where in Spain is that? Is that southern? Yeah. Okay. It's in southern Spain in the region. I think that's called Andalusia. Okay. Um, it was. It's kind of close to the Mediterranean Sea as well as well as uh, Morocco. Mm. Um, and that was a point that. Um, the, the Moors had ruled for a few centuries as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I asked because, uh, I had a, a guest on the podcast last year who was a professor and she, um, she studied in Spain, met her husband there and has been to mm-hmm. Spain multiple times. Uh, she's, she's a black woman and, uh, you know, so her kids are, they're Spanish and they're also, you know, black mm-hmm. American. And she, um, as a professor, well, as a writer and a journalist first who became a professor, she took some time and kind of like made it her mission to to find out what history or what trace there is of black people in Spain because she mm-hmm. felt so like like she she um having gone to Spain at the first time and just in love with the language and wanting to just immerse herself she was very mm. off put uh, taken off guard by like the racism there mm. or the the you know the the idea of like who's spanish and who's not and how black people mm. didn't seem to be a part of that so she like went and she researched you know the traces of of black people of this of of the slave trade in Spain and you know um kind of of uh, countering that idea that you like you said that there weren't black people in Europe from right. you know <laughs> like right. throughout history so mm-hmm. um, and you know she she found some really interesting things and and she still even now is kind of like uh, that's like an interest of hers in terms of uh, you know finding 
that part of Spain or Spanish culture that's not just white, you know. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I just um, I think that's interesting that you mentioned that because that immediately brought that back up in my mind because she, you know, was on a similar mission and was in a similar uh, part of Spain when she was doing that. So it's it's interesting mm-hmm. that she's not the only one. Like there's a whole <laughs> organization yeah. out there trying to trying to unearth and 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 talk about this history and and the, trying not to erase black people from from history within mm-hmm. Spain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think unearth is a really good way to put it. I think that's kind of what that conference was trying to do as well. Um, because, you know, these histories are buried and, and intentionally buried. You know, it's one of the, another thing that's absurd about our education here in the United States is we have never heard about, uh, African people in Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, like when we think of Europe, it's like, you know, pasty white. We never think that <laughs> there have been African people in Europe for centuries, even before um, the transatlantic slave the slave trade, mm-hmm. and you know they have contributed to the development of Europe. It's um, e- economics and culture and politics and language, and um, it's like there's so much, I guess, transculturation or you know um, processes of uh, mixture and a, I guess a cultural mixture that have happened in that region of the world. And the fact that we don't know anything about it is pretty insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, glad there are people out there who are trying to make sure it doesn't go, you know, continue to be, you know, hidden or forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how did this this conference play out? Was it a similar thing where y'all y'all were only there for a week? And I mean, what what were the the topics or the ideas that you were presenting at this at this conference? Yeah, we were there for a week, um, and it was more of an academic conference than the other two I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and we presented on our research in Trinidad and Cuba, specifically with regard to the concepts of African diaspora and culture. Yeah. Um, it was very broad because each of us, um, that had traveled had different, uh, interests and questions, uh, that we'd like to investigate. And so, uh, we each kind of spoke about that, but we were mostly talking so we we all had our separate interests and we kind of brought them into the presentation, but our central topic was about our experience learning research methods. So it's kind of like a meta discussion. Mm. We were um, talking about what it was like to implement conversational interviews in Trinidad and uh, participant observation in the religious community in Santiago de Cuba. Um, and, you know, how was that process for us? What did we learn? What skills did we develop? What problems did we encounter? And I guess through all that, what did we learn about the African diaspora? Yeah. So you were like presenting, in part you were presenting on like how to do research, like your research on how to go about doing research. And then, like you said, whereas in Trinidad and Tobago and Cuba, it was more like community-based or trying to forge that bridge between the academia and, and, and the local community in Spain, it was very much like, like you said, like an academic conference. Um, yeah. okay. All right. And so, I mean, again, I, I've never, I haven't been to an academic conference, so I don't know how they go, but I mean, did you get any feedback or response to what you presented and in, in your findings? Yeah, actually we um, I was, I was very thankful because we got some really positive feedback. Um, there were a few professors there 
that had attended our discussion because they were interested in uh, questions about how they teach their undergraduate students um, mm-hmm. research methods and particularly participant observation or like site, like uh, on-site sociological research. Mm-hmm. And um, so she found our, our reflections really useful for her in, in developing. There was one woman in particular that was, you know, found it very useful. And um, others were very impressed with our ability to articulate our comprehension of the concepts and how they, uh, how we witnessed those in, in, uh, in action mm-hmm. on site. Um, and they were impressed with our approach to the research, you know, that was um, trying to center the actual communities and their comprehension of the world rather than impose our, uh, our comprehension of the world onto them. Yeah. So um, we were, yeah, we were well received. It was cool. That's good. That's wonderful. And I mean, did you, um, was there anything in particular you remember that you did outside of the conference, like exploring Sevilla or anything that you did that was super fun or anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we went to, um, I think it's El Alcazar. It's a, an old Moorish palace um, mm. in downtown or like the heart of Sevilla. Um, it's really stunning architecture and just like beautiful, I think, um, like Islamic ceiling painting. and all mm. that kind of stuff. I actually don't know that much about um, Islamic or Moorish culture, so I, I can't really speak to what exactly I saw, but it was, mm-hmm. it was very beautiful. Um, and it's more of like, it's very interesting to me because the Moorish conquests of, uh, I guess the Iberian Peninsula or Portugal and Spain are, was really important for the, I guess, development of modernity in, in the realms of culture and, um, the way that European colonization of the world and racial ideology eventually developed. So it was it was really interesting to see that in person and um, kind of pick up on, you know, little clues about that, that history by seeing it, you know, visually, physically in front of me. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That must have really been something. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Nice. And so uh, I think in, in the beginning you, you mentioned uh, when you were thinking about going to Peru, uh, and if I'm uh, misremembering, please correct me, but it sounds like you were also maybe considering, uh, like, a career in academia. I don't know if you were trying to be a professor or whatnot. Uh, I mean, like, at the time, while you were at MSU, was that the route that you were thinking of going for? Yeah, definitely. I was very interested in that. Um, and joining the research team, the African Atlantic Research Team, um, that was one of my main goals because it's a mentoring collective that trains underrepresented students to earn the PhD. Mm-hmm. So there are um, women and low-income students of all races, but primarily focus on uh, non-European students and especially African-descended students. So um, we were all being trained to work toward earning the PhD. And one of my colleagues is in a PhD program for sociology now. Another had just finished her master's in sociology Um a third is applying to graduate school, and the fourth is just working now, as am I. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so that was a, a strong interest of mine. Yeah. Do you think that's something that you would pursue going forward? Or, I mean, have your interests changed? That's totally fine if they have, you know, life happens and interests 
life path change, interest change, but is that something that you're still interested in? Um, I think at this point I'm not interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I loved learning sociological science and theory because it helped me um, articulate how oppression and how uh, liberation would occur. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of limits to academic sociology um, just in the way that they, they select what theory and what interpretations of society are uh, valuable and what's not. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I, in my education, I was really, really interested in learning more about, I guess, like Marxist theory, um, the history of socialism, socialist revolution, mm-hmm. um, the history of the development of the modern world and capitalism and colonialism. And we talked about some about the development of capitalism, some about the development of colonialism, but we didn't touch on any of those other things I was interested in. I was interested in as well, like the historical revolutions of the past, like the Russian and Chinese revolutions, the Haitian mm-hmm. revolution, um, and Pan-Africanism as a, a philosophy and uh, an idea around which people organize themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I just didn't find that discussed anywhere. And I think... I was once I got out of college, I was excited to finally start reading the things that I had been wanting to read, mm-hmm. um, and so I have been reading things from um, you know revolutionaries of the past, and um, I've been reading some more Marxist material. Um, reading so my my family comes from China, so I've been reading some about our own history, our own revolution, mm-hmm. um, and finding that very meaningful. And I think I've always wanted to learn social theory so that I can apply it in practice yeah. and um, bring it into spaces where I organize collectively with other people for uh, collective liberation, you know, not just developing my own individual academic career. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been more interested in going to the people um, and, and serving the people. I think it's fine to, you know, enjoy knowledge production and engaging theory. But for me personally, I think I wanted to go beyond the limits of just producing knowledge, yeah. um, which is what an academic career entails, mm-hmm. and go into you know, producing or you know engaging with knowledge, at least, and uh, bring it into practice in ways that serve the people and you know, can liberate people. Yeah. Uh, so I've been doing more on-the-ground organizing and um, still doing political education and doing workshops and things like that with youth about... Um, these topics that I learned about in college and that I learned about in my study abroad experiences, but more so in a way that is toward organizing and uh, liberation. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, no, it's totally... Material liberation, I guess, you know. Yeah. Um, there's like a way to liberate your mind through knowledge, but uh, where I'm thinking more these days about more material liberation and like, collective, so... Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, and that's totally fair. And... Um, yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because there is that kind of distance between like the academia and like the general public or, you know, people on the ground, local communities. And so it's like theory is useful, right? And, and creating theory is useful, but then um, making it accessible is also something that's important. So it seems like you found kind of, what am I trying to say? Like that, that's like the, where your priorities have, have shifted. And, and that's, mm-hmm. I think that's pretty cool if I say so myself. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, 
Okay, so, uh, so after after all that, all the you know, Trinidad and Tobago and, and Cuba and and Spain, all that, all those places you went to as part of this um, research collective and 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 those those aims you had for that particular uh, research subject. Beyond that, have you uh, is, is there been anywhere else that you've gone outside of the country since then, or anywhere else that you you're thinking that you'd like to go to? Mm. Um, let's see. I think so. A couple of years ago, I went to China. Um, it was my first time actually going back. Um, my family came to the United States a long time ago, mm-hmm. so we don't really have a very strong connection with our family there anymore. Um, but I got to see a lot of different things that I'd always, you know, been interested in, um, like major cultural sites and yeah. um, cities in the south where our family's from, and that was really cool. Um, I also traveled to the Philippines this last year with other family uh, who are from there. And, um, you know, just mostly spent time with family. There is a very family-oriented trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm always doing that kind of, like, conversational interview stuff I learned from my mm-hmm. research experiences. And yeah. since I have an interest in the history of China and the history of the Philippines, for example, um, just talking with people I meet on the street there about, their families and their histories and kind of contextualizing that in the larger history. So the methods and I guess skills that I learned in the research team are ones that are pretty universal. So I, I try to still apply them. Yeah. Okay. And, and any, any place that you'd like to go to in the future at some point, any place that's high on your list? Hmm. Uh, well, so I'm, I am Japanese as well. So I, mm-hmm. I have not yet been to Japan and I do, have relationships with family members that are living in Japan now. So mm. um, it'd be great to go visit them in person. They've come here to the States and visited, but I've never been there. Okay. Um, I think just uh, going back to the Philippines, I do some organizing work with uh, Filipino youth. So we have some organizational chapters there that would be great to go visit um, mm-hmm. and do some more integration there. Um, when I traveled most recently, we... Uh, integrated with some of the urban poor community who were displaced by a fire that they uh, suspect was intentional mm. by the city government and developers um, to clear the way for some new apartments that are being put up oh, now. Oh, my goodness. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we went and integrated with them and learned about their um, their experiences. And so yeah. we're connected with people that, you know, serve the poor like that. So I think I would like to go back and do more of that Yeah, mostly. Um I'd love to go back to Cuba if possible. Um, there's a lot of travel restrictions on that, so mm, yeah. I don't know if that will be possible anytime soon. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I, I enjoy Spanish as well, so I would go anywhere in Latin America that's mm. Spanish-speaking and um, work on my skills some more. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And, and um, uh, one question I had uh, going back to the research trips you went on. You know, if you don't mind sharing, how how were you able to afford going on these trips? Were they like funded because they were uh, for research, or was there like were scholarships you had to get, or any other fundraising that you did in order to be able to go? Yeah, um, let's see. So I think I got funding for each of the three trips we did, mm. and they were from the College of Social Science at Michigan State. Uh, some was from the Department of Sociology and others was just uh, kind of financial support from the research team. Okay. 
and then of course we we considered ourselves a socialist organization so we were uh we were sharing our resources collectively so you know i would lend money to my colleagues and they would help me out and things like that mm. um so there was kind of like a, a collective uh support there yeah um but yeah so i got a couple of research grants from the college of social science i got a study abroad grant for i think cuba um and i had another scholarship that was separate for um sociology but then i just put all that money toward the sevilla experience Hmm. Okay. And um, it was it was interesting because you know these travel experiences were with the research team and they were not facilitated through the Office of Study Abroad, and so you know I normally would not have been eligible to, uh, or I was technically not eligible to apply and receive this money. Mm-hmm. But um, we made our case that you know we are doing a study abroad program. We're learning. Right. <laughs> uh, we're doing research. We're learning methods. Um, and it's, you know, going to have concrete outcomes in, you know, papers and it's going to be the, in the museum exhibition that we're eventually working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the lesson to take from that is to don't preclude yourself from traveling abroad if you, you know, don't like the programs that are in the office of study abroad or something, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, the traditional study abroad channels. You can find other things, you know, with a faculty member. Um, you can join their research project abroad or something, and you can still apply for funding because you know technically you are studying abroad. So, yeah, um, I would encourage anyone that's interested in doing something a little bit different, a little bit alternative, to use all you know the, all of the routes and the creative methods you can use to get some financial support. Yeah, definitely, that's really good advice. And um, do do you have any other takeaways or advice that you'd want to share with someone who wants to study abroad or do research abroad or just travel more in general anything that Mm. you can think off the top of your head that you'd want to share i highly encourage studying abroad um if you are a person of color i would highly encourage going someplace that's not europe or something that's not you know australia or another uh, european dominated space just because it is such a wonderful affirming experience in so many ways mm-hmm. um and you can learn a lot more because there's like you know to get like kind of deep i guess um there's a certain like comprehension of the world a certain ontological approach to the world and other people that is common to these societies that are or have been colonizer societies mm-hmm. like spain or the united states or yeah. um you know the culture and the ideas that are part of those societies are often uh, less human in a way, or, you know, they're less affirmative. They're, the culture and the ideas are different, very different than what you'll find abroad. So it can be very liberating just to immerse yourself in a community of people um, that think very differently and, and live very differently, view the world and other people and nature in very different ways than what we're used to in the United States. Yeah. Um, it's so I would highly, highly recommend going someplace different. Um, yeah, I say also know, kind of know yourself and know your limits as well. Um, one mm-hmm. of the reasons I didn't go to Peru is because I was going to be staying for six weeks with a family there in rural Peru, and I knew that you know having never traveled abroad in any meaningful sense, that would have been too much for me. I would have been over my head. I, mm-hmm. You know, I have problems with anxiety, so mm-hmm. I 
probably would have had, you know, issues with anxiety there as well. And not, not being able to leave, you know, whenever you want, whenever it gets too much, uh, would have been too much for me. So I was, uh, thankful that I went on these smaller experiences that were just a week at a time. And, um, you know, with, with colleagues, you know, I wasn't just staying by myself, Mm -hmm. um, in the community. I was with, excuse me, colleagues that I already knew. So yeah, just know yourself, know what you would be most comfortable with, you know, push your boundaries, but you know, don't make it too hard on yourself. And yeah, definitely, definitely travel if you can. Yeah. And apply for funding and support anywhere you can too. Cause you know, I didn't expect to get on any of that funding I did, but I did. But you did. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It worked out. Okay. And, um, I don't know if, if, if you're allowed to say, cause I know it's still like in development, but do you know, like, like which museum or where the museum is that you're preparing that you all are preparing this exhibition for? Yeah, I don't want to speak to that too much because okay. I, I haven't worked on the project in, I think, two years since I graduated, and I okay. don't know what status the project is at. Um, I know like some people on the research team have moved on um, to other positions and things like that, so mm. I'm not sure that the, the project is still in development or if it, uh, if it was you know, abandoned or tabled for, for now. Um, so I don't know. It was going to be at Michigan State University in the University Museum. It was going to be about um, cultural artifacts from African diaspora. Okay. And just exploring and explaining the concept of African diaspora and how it's significant to uh, the development of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mentioned it before, but the African diaspora and African descendants, broadly speaking, are far, far, far more important to the development of modernity in every sphere of social life mm. than, you know, people think. Right. Um, the Haitian Revolution was one of the most influential things that has ever happened, and yet we never hear about it. So mm. it's like things like that are uh, important to understand. That's what the museum exhibition was going to be about. Um, and I, I don't know at what stage that's at. So okay. hopefully it'll be out. I don't know. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, um, those are, well, I do have one last question, but besides that, that's, mm-hmm. those are all the questions I had for you today. Ooh, excuse me. My last question is, uh, is there a way for people to reach you or keep up with you online if you'd like them to do so? Um, let's see. I don't really publish anything online. I just have, you know, my basic personal social medias. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am part of an organization called Anak Bayan. Um, it's a Filipino youth organization. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, are organizing toward the true independence of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a local chapter in Detroit. Uh, so you can follow us on Instagram at Anak Bayan underscore Detroit. Okay. And the first word, um, Anak Bayan is spelled A-N-A-K-B-A-Y-A-N. Mm. Um, it's two words, Anak and Bayan. It's a, Anak is like child or youth and Bayan is a country or a nation. So youth of the country, youth of the nation, mm. um, is the, the meaning there. So look up Anak Bayan. Um, there's chapters everywhere. There might be a chapter in your city, uh, wherever the listeners are. And, uh, yeah, check us out, Anak Bayan Detroit. Okay. All right. Sounds great. Um, 
Well, thank you so much for your time. And, uh, yes, I mean, this has been a pleasure. I I feel like I've I've learned so much from you just sitting and (laughs) talking, listening Mm -hmm. to you talk about what you've done. So, uh, thank you for. I hope I didn't talk too much. Oh, no, it was great. It was great. Thank you for educating me today. (laughs) I would love to, you know, uh, have more conversations too, because I have a lot to learn as well from other people. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but I'm I'm just really glad we got this chance to to talk more uh, since you know it had been so long <laughs> since yeah, right. we, we met and it was very brief, very casual. So it was, uh, mm-hmm. I enjoyed getting to learn more about more about um, you know your background and your interests. And I hope you have enjoyed this conversation as Absolutely. well. <laughs> so yeah. uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, it's 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 uh it's great to speak with you and uh, I hope to do more of it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. So uh I will let you go. I hope you continue to to, to heal so that you won't have to yeah, deal with this cough you. anymore. <laughs> and it's not too much work editing out my coughs. Oh no, it's fine. Thing. It's fine. <laughs> it's no no trouble, no worries at all. Um yeah. So uh enjoy the rest of your Sunday and I hope you have a great week and you will hear from me as it gets closer to 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 April 14th so you'll know what's going on and when it's coming out and everything excellent okay thank you so much really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you oh yes thank you as well you are very welcome and I uh, I will be in touch I'll talk to you later okay awesome thanks alright bye Alec you too (laughs) bye alright y'all there it is Thanks to Alec for being such a wonderful guest, and I hope you like how this all turned out. For the rest of you listening, don't forget to follow this podcast at Young Gifted and Abroad on Instagram and Facebook, and at YG Abroad on Twitter. And don't forget to check out guest profiles and resource lists on younggiftedandabroad.com. Also, if you enjoy what you've been hearing so far, then please continue listening to this podcast wherever podcasts are. And you're welcome to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher while you're at it. And as always, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com. So for the next episode in two weeks, the guest is going to be someone who works in tech now. But before they started working in tech, they spent some time studying international law at Oxford. So you'll get to hear all about that in two weeks. But until then, thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time. To the sun, the side of the street. Yeah, to eat, up to the